Welcome to another episode of Kendall vs. Kendall, presented by Jensen USA. I am one of your hosts. My name is Jeff Kendall Weed, and my other host, Seth Kendall, is not able to be with us today, but we're lucky enough to be here with my good buddy, Kyle Warner. Yeah, dude, I'm stoked. Thanks for making the trip. How long have you been driving today? Uh, 10 hours from Boise to here and some traffic in between. But I really appreciate your time and just stoked to be on here and kind of, uh, yeah, just talk about bikes. Thanks. It's great to have you. And I'm excited to be on your podcast as well. So yeah. everyone heads up. Kyle has a podcast. Where can everyone find your podcast? Um, my SEO sucks, as we found out. So if you go that's to okay. YouTube and do uh, just Kyle Warner, that's my YouTube channel. And it'll be called The Great Escape. And basically just talking to people about how they got into mountain biking, how they use it as an outlet and... Um, yeah, what we all kind of enjoy about it. So it's really cool. Awesome. So go to your YouTube channel, and from your YouTube channel, we can then link to your podcast. Yeah, perfect. Excellent. Is it up on iTunes? Not yet. Okay. Okay. I can give you some tips on getting that all sorted out. It's cool. super easy. You'll be That'd fine. Be rad. Um, first up, you did an awesome podcast with Vital for the Inside Line. I listened to that a while ago. That was a great podcast, and I don't want to ask you all those same questions. <laughs> I feel like if people that are listening here want to know more about how you got into mountain biking and your original story, that's such a good podcast. It's definitely worth a listen. So. Cool. Thank you. And I believe Jensen helped sponsor some of the Vital stuff as well, so that's yeah, even better. Yeah, it's cool. <laughs> no, that was a fun project to do with uh, Spomer and the Vital crew, and I think he did a good job asking me the right questions. So if anyone is interested, then go over there and then we'll talk about some new stuff today. Yeah, exactly. Well, <laughs> first up, in case we do have some people here who aren't familiar with you, uh, real quick, do you want to tell us some of the biggest accomplishments of your career to date? Yeah. So I uh, started off as a racer and kind of was doing more of the enduro stuff like in 2012 when it really started kicking off in the US. Um, I was fortunate enough to be North American Enduro Tour champion in 2014, 15, and 16. So okay. like back to back to back, which is really cool. Um, in 2016, I helped advocate and build a free public pump track in Chico, California, which is yeah. my hometown. And uh, that was kind of like a switching point for me when I just saw how stoked all the kids were that were using it and how much more that satisfied me than race results. And so ever since then, I've been trying to do more advocacy stuff, um, still racing a bit, but not quite, quite as much for sure. And uh, yeah, just trying to be a good ambassador for the sport, get people stoked on bikes and show this can be such a good outlet for people, you know, very healthy activity. Exactly. And that's why we wanted to do something in Chico that was a free public park because Chico has Chico and the surrounding Oroville area has one of the highest meth and opioid epidemics of anywhere in the U.S. And um, yeah, like growing up, you know, being involved in some of that with my family, it was really cool to give some some of the kids a place to escape. And that's something we didn't have that was legal back there in Chico. So now that it's legal and kids can go hang out and, you know, I'll drive by there sometimes and see kids out there at 7 p.m. And I know nice. that they're there instead of being at home with their family because that pump track is their escape. And that was so uh, impactful and meaningful that I just want to do more stuff like that and have recently been helping out to build the Boise Bike Park which has been really cool. Albertsons donated two and a half million dollars. I um, heard about that. That's, a, that's the one that um, uh, Alpine Bike Parks is building, right? Yeah, exactly. That's awesome. So Judd and the crew over there, we've been working on that. And um, cool. yeah, just stoked to do more of that. Awesome. Um, so you are still racing? I, I would say I'm soft retired. Soft so, retired. <laughs> yeah. Honestly, like, so I'm 27. I just turned 27. And growing from like 23, 24 to, to now, um, I've had a big change as far as like how much I feel like I need to prove myself just in life in general. Right. And I feel more confident, more mature. And I feel like a lot of that edge that you need to like really race hard has kind of left me in a way. Like okay. I'm fulfilled in other ways in life. And I don't feel like I 
am as good at racing now because I can't get in that mindset. So if I do race, it's just because I'm going out to have fun and just have a good time with it instead mm-hmm. of like taking it so seriously. So yeah, I definitely do some regional stuff. And I actually did Mega Avalanche a few weeks ago um, in France. So still a racer, but it's like, yeah, I just do it for fun. It's not my driving factor anymore. Nice. It's not the only thing you're focused on. No, definitely not. And cool. I work a lot with brands for product development too. That's kind of one of my biggest roles and how I pay the bills is working with brands, helping them develop products, figuring out target demographics, how we can make cool stuff that uh, people want to ride and kind of reach a broader audience. Nice. Nice. Um, which companies are you working with? Um, are they all sponsors? Yeah, they are. Yeah. And I have probably like 20 companies that I'm working with that are sponsors. And then about two that are, I'm working with that are not technically sponsors, but, um, the big ones are Rosignol bikes. So they, the ski company, they're getting into the mountain bike, um, arena and they kind of want to figure out the demographic and how they can make a good push at this, which is exciting. Um, SR Sun Tour is another huge one. Shimano, uh, you know, Stans, Michelin, just a bunch of brands that have supported me over the years and I'm stoked to keep working with them. What is it you enjoy about product development? Uh, man, I think the coolest thing is seeing um, ideas manifest as an actual product, right? So you're riding one day, you're like, dude, like with the uh, new XT and XTR cassettes over the past few years, we had a conversation in 2013 with the Japanese engineer at Shimano, like, hey, we want a tight gear spacing in the middle of the cassette and then a big bailout gear. Because oh. they were trying to do like bigger jumps throughout the whole cassette. Sure. And we're like, when we're racing, we're coming out of a corner. And then when you shift down one gear, yep. you want it to be marginally different, right? Mm-hmm. He goes, oh, cool. Like, that makes sense. And then the next two years after that, they came out with the 11 to 46, with yeah. the big bailout gear. Ah, so that was cool. a conversation that happened at Winter Park in 2013. Okay. And yeah, stuff like that. It's just really fun. And now with the e-bike stuff, like, I know everyone has different opinions on e-bikes, but... I'm uh, very excited as far as like including more people in mountain biking and giving them uh, an access to the outlet. And uh, I don't know, it's just fun to develop stuff for that too. Like different forces are being applied, especially on like the forks. Um, SR Sun Tours had a lot of interesting things develop with like chassis. So basically we're going to like a bigger oversized chassis that's stiffer and can resist the braking force more. Cool. Because adding 15 or 20 pounds to the bike doesn't seem like a huge deal, but where it's placed and the amount of extra traction and the weight that shifts onto the front tire really puts the fork under a lot more load. Yeah, so. for sure. So are they going to be more dual crown forks on e-bikes, do you think? Or is it more beefed up single crowns? Um, that's a good question. And I think personally, I see it being more beefed up single crowns. Okay. Um, Dual crowns are awesome, but for technical climbing, like you basically have, you either have to run a crazy offset and get it pushed pretty far forward so you still have good steering range, or yeah, it kind of doesn't work for steering up tight switchbacks. But I'm excited to see like beefed up single crowns, and I think that'll transfer to the enduro market really well. Sure. And also, the beefed up single crowns will help with trail access because then the bikes won't look like huge like motors. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hopefully, we don't add gas tanks or. Uh, <laughs> Or number plate. Kickstands. Yeah, totally. <laughs> but it's been cool. It's been really cool. Um, one thing I really wanted to ask you, since you were so involved in the race scene for so long, what does enduro racing look like today in North America? And I want like a 30,000 foot big picture view. What's the race scene like now compared to, say, five years ago? Oh, man, it's changed so much. And it was pretty cool to see like in 2012 when it started to become adopted. And then when 2013, when it really made a big push. Um you saw so many people jump into it so fast. And I think a lot of the brands invested a ton of money and resources into sponsoring athletes, promoting riders, getting them set up with vans and travel accommodation, <laughs> all this stuff, right? And you're like, man, this is crazy. It was a good time to be a rider. And there was a lot of money in the industry. 
Um, I think since then, like 2013 to 2016, they were still pretty heavily invested. And then the past couple of years, it really seems to me like they've pulled money out. Okay. Um, I think a lot of what happened was basically brands thought, dude, this is the new best thing. It's going to be a huge ROI, like return on investment. And when they didn't see that, then they were like, oh, maybe we could cut spending here. And then I think that what you're seeing instead now is the demo tour is growing. So like Outer Bike and events like that, um, you're starting to see more and more companies focus on those personal interactions okay. and getting people that are like, you know, working nine to five, 40 hours a week, and they just want to go out on the weekend, try all the cool bikes for, you know, pay a hundred bucks, you get beer, you get lunch, you get cool riding area. Like there's no stress, no pressure. And your wife mm. doesn't get mad because you're not getting hurt, you know, trying to prove yourself. Oh man, if Strava's going, <laughs> there's some people that would definitely send it. <laughs> totally. But yeah, it's cool. So I think the state of enduro racing, um, a lot of the funding has dried up. And because of that, you're seeing less, uh, less and less pro athletes try to make a push in North America, and they're doing a lot more EWS stuff. But in terms of the actual events, do you think there's more or less actual enduro races now as opposed to, say, three years ago? I would say that, um, in my opinion, there's more races than before, but okay. the turnout is uh, smaller at each race. Like in 2015, at the Oregon Enduros and stuff, like, dude, we'd literally have three or 400 people yeah. sold out. Yeah. Big Mountain Enduro, 400 people sold out. Like, every race was sold out. And now I'm seeing those races sell out less so there's always spots available. You can kind of get in even the week before the race. Yeah, and interesting. So, but there are more events too. So I don't know. It's it's tricky. Racing's, How's the quality of events in this day and age? I don't know. It's also another weird thing where Enduro kind of uh, had Super D roots. Mm-hmm. And for people that don't know what Super D is, you know, it's okay. long, you know, tw- Ashland 12-mile Super D. It's one long 30-minute run. And basically, it's you shuttle the top or some people would pedal and then just rip <laughs> all the way down. And Enduro started to break that up into time segments. Like in Ashland, you'd do the fire road descent, you'd skip the climb, and then do the rest of the trail. Yeah. And um, now it seems like Enduro has morphed into something where it's like, we're going to do an eight-hour day on the bike and climb every single peak in this little zone, and you're going to put six to 8,000 feet of climbing on. You know, And I think in a way that's brought some people in because they're like, dude, this is gnarly. Yeah. This is what I want to be doing. Um for some people, though, like for myself, it actually kind of drove me away from it, mostly because I would just kind of like get ADD and get bored out there for like eight hours. Oh, man. You don't like the long rides? I, I will. I don't know. It's tough. Like I like them in a sense when I'm with my friends and hang out. But mm-hmm. when you're in a race mindset and environment and you're like, okay, I need to do well to help pay the bills. Like basically my performance helps dictate how my home life's going to be, right? And then you're like in this mindset for eight hours, like, okay, focus, focus, focus. It was really hard on me. And, um, yeah, it just kind of made it unenjoyable in a sense, but I've always really enjoyed like hood river and some of the races like that, where you'd kind of shuttle or pedal up to the top in the early morning and then just work your way down the mountain with some shorter stages. And, uh, yeah, it was cool, but it's changed a lot for sure. Interesting. Have you done any of the trans style races? You know, I haven't done one of those yet, actually. And no, I, would, I haven't either. <laughs> yeah, I would love to. And I think that would be a great event to come into it with a um, non-result-based mindset. Mm-hmm. Like, I would love to just go in, have fun, spend a week riding with people and just, I don't know, have a good time with it instead of trying to be a top five guy. But you're such a racer. Do you think you could do that? Maybe I don't you could know. turn off a competitive... I, I don't know. It's tough. It's hard. Like, I always think, oh, I'm just going to have fun with this. And then race day, you're nervous. You're like, feel like you're going to puke. And you're like, okay, I'm going to go fast. But... It'd be hard, but I think now as I'm getting older, I could definitely enjoy that style of event way more. And I'm, I love going out for long rides if there's no competitive atmosphere, like I'll go all day, but yeah, it's hard being in that mindset for me all day. 
So when you race, you get into a hyper-focused state compared to a regular ride? Yeah, totally. And I'm not like naturally a super competitive person, but what it kind of turned into for me, like growing up without a lot of money, when I started to realize that like at a certain point when I was racing really well, like every win, I would make about $5,000 for my sponsors for incentives. Wow. And like top or second was like three grand, uh, third was like 1500. So like I knew that if I got third versus fourth, it's a $1,500 difference. So if you're like battling through the day with your friends, you're like, oh dude, I have to do this to pay rent. Mm -hmm. So it changed the dynamic a lot for me. And, um, yeah, that was when I started to like really have a hard time in those longer days. And it's, it's just, it's hard. You know, you're hanging out with all the guys that you really respect and you like as friends, but you're also like, dude, I have $0 in the bank. Like I'm trying to make this work and I need to beat you. Sure. So it's, it's kind of a different mindset and that's why I enjoy like being non-competitive now. And I have built stronger like relationships and friendships with my competitors, quote unquote, than ever before. So it's been really cool. Do you think in this day and age, it's actually possible to still be just a North American, like for lack of a better term, domestic, just within the continent pro racer? Um, I think... Uh, Honestly, no, I don't think you can do it and make a living Okay. like in 2013 and that kind of few years following then, mm-hmm. um, the companies had dumped so much money into it that it was possible. And then it seems to have dried up about like two years ago. So I think North America is a really good place to go around, hit races for fun and build a name for yourself to try to get on an EWS team. But even then, like if you're on an EWS team, you know, I have some friends that are top 20 riders that make less than 10 grand a year. Oof. And they get all their travel paid for, but they're taking home less than 10K yeah, yeah. and they're living at home with their parents. And, um, you know, when you're 25 years old, you're kind of at a, a turning point in your life. You're like, what do I do here? You know, am I going to just keep living with my parents and do this? And, you know, like YOLO, quote unquote, like, you know, just enjoy every day and just travel. Or am I going to start trying to build for the future? And it's a tough question because like mountain biking is awesome and you just want to go ride. But at some point, like, you know, life doesn't wait for you and you have to kind of make that decision of. How are we going to do this? Totally. Oh, man. You've had a, a quite a long career, though. I mean, starting racing, and you basically went pro right away. I remember you yep. showed up to that Hood River race in 2012. I was there. You were on, like, a broken bike yeah, with yeah. a stick in the chainstay <laughs> yeah, taped together. Yeah, broke the chainstay and electrical tape to stick in the frame and raced that and got top 10, and that was kind of, like, the, the you know big moment where I signed with Sun Tour that next week and started to get paid, so that was really cool. Did you ever think back in 2012, 2013 that the scene would get so big in the U.S. but then kind of fall off? And it seems like compared to like France, for instance, or Italy, it seems the enduro scenes are still pretty strong out there. But I don't know if regardless, did you see at that point in time that you think that it would have such like an arc to the popularity of the series? Um, I, I don't know. I think when it was happening, basically, we all looked at it and said, dude, this is so rad and all the cross country guys were stoked. The super D guys were stoked. The downhill guys were stoked. Like, and it kind of converged three disciplines yeah. into one. So there's so many people racing. And then once it got more and more specialized, then it kind of went back to having your cross country crowd, your enduro crowd, your downhill crowd. Yeah. And it just, I don't know. It's weird. Like you don't see very many guys like mixing it up as much anymore. Whereas for a bit there, you'd go to EWS and you'd have like Nino Scherter and you'd have Steve P and then you'd have all the enduro guys. And like, it was this big mix of the entire industry. And now it's like, you're a cross country guy, you're an enduro guy, you're a downhill guy, or you're a pump track racer. (laughs) A pump track racer. (laughs) Whoa, like how is this so specialized again? And that was kind of what enduro was meant to break was like the specialized Mm -hmm. format, but it's kind of built its own. Have you raced much pump track stuff? Yeah, a bit. I did wow. the Red Bull World Champs qualifiers last year and got second at the Leavenworth stop. And oh, then, cool. 
yeah, qualified for the finals, but then just didn't end up making it out there to uh, wherever it was in uh, Bentonville, Arkansas. Oh, yeah. okay. Walmart like built a huge track for it, the Walton Foundation, mm-hmm. and then they held the World Champs finals in conjunction with Red Bull. Man, I know almost nothing about this pump track. <laughs> I, I didn't even think of that as a racing discipline, and you mentioned it, and I'm like, pump track racing? Wow. Yeah, yeah it's growing. It's like it's growing really fast and it's so specialized. The guys are on like aluminum hardtails with super high engagement hubs. So like you can't pedal, quote, you know, like can't pedal, but if you get a little tiny bit of pump off each roller and your, your hub has high engagement, you can kind of get it. Why little can't boost. you pedal? This is the rules, like no pedal strokes. <laughs> so you just start, drop in, pump, pump, pump. <laughs> it's growing really fast and you have like... But then why does the bike have a chain if you can't pedal? I know. So it depends on the stop, but there was about half of the stops last year that let you keep your chain on and half that didn't. What do you think is more legit? Uh, I mean, obviously having no chain would be more legit. Okay. Because then it's all pump, you know, but having no chain is kind of dangerous because I don't know, sometimes you rely on that to get a little bit of like pop coming off of a lip or something. So it's hard if you've always ridden with a chain and then you take it off. Sometimes the jumping feels different. Sure. But so for you, what would you like when you think of pump tracking, do you think about it as getting around the track as fast as you can or do you think about it as only pumping on the series of jumps? Well, it's funny you ask that. Because like when I was growing up, we built this massive pump track in the backyard. Mm-hmm. Just I saw pictures and videos of that. Yeah, it was cool. Like We had two 17-foot um, diameter bowls, like a big figure eight bowl, and wall rides and vert walls and all kinds of stuff. And to me, pump tracking is being as creative you can as you can in a small space. Okay. So doubling from this berm to the backside of that roller, from this roller to that roller, creating new gaps, yeah. manualing things, nose bonking stuff. And so it's funny because, again, like racing has kind of um, diluted and changed the way that people think about it. And now you see people show up to a pump track and just full face helmet, knee pads, everything, just go race around it. And then if you're someone who kind of like plays around, it's a little bit weird. But I think pump tracks are basically just a big playground. And there almost should be no like directional line, right? It's like, just do what you want, have fun, be creative, try to gap from berm to berm, do all this cool stuff. And the racing has definitely brought like more of the BMX side in. Mm-hmm. And so at the world champ finals last year, if I'm not mistaken, I think there was like four BMX and four hardtail mountain bike oh, in the wow. top eight. Okay. So it's like very mixed. And so the neither bike had an advantage over the other? Not so much. And it really wow. depends on how deep the rollers are. Because okay. uh, the deeper the roller, the 20-inch wheel, you can suck it up higher towards your ass without it oh. actually hitting you. Okay. Same with how you're seeing like mullet bikes now, like the 27.5 <laughs> rear, 29 front. It actually gives you about 18 mil more clearance That's true. towards your butt. So it's like yeah. for a shorter rider, it makes such a big difference. But You're one of the few people I know that have raced EWS. And Mega Avalanche. Yeah. Which one's gnarlier? And for people that don't know what Mega Avalanche is, it's uh, like a 400-person mass start race on a glacier. And then you go like speeds upwards of 60 miles an hour on the snow. And then that snow section is about five minutes into f- about 40 minutes of trail. Okay. Um, so yeah, winning times are somewhere around like 42 minutes usually or sometimes a little bit under. And how much descending is in Mega Avalanche? 8,000 foot top to bottom in one run in one run yeah and there's like a maybe four uh, maybe three or four minute climb in the middle too okay yeah it's different mentality a three or four minute climb yeah in an eight thousand foot descent yeah <laughs> <laughs> it's gnarly like yeah. the first year i went on the snow basically tucked with you know 400 people behind me there i hit 62 miles an hour and you're just on normal tires too wow which is crazy. And then, yeah, this year I went back and raced it on the e-bike actually okay. um, to do some development stuff with Suntour. 
And yeah, I hit 57 miles an hour and it's just wow. ice. And you're like, oh my God. So but what's gnarlier, the EWS or Mega Avalanche? I think from a pure like physical gnarliness, like you have to be a badass dude to do it. I think EWS is gnarlier okay? because it's such a big day. And like racing tired after an eight hour day, you're, it's so hard. Even with the short stages. Yeah, for sure. Because I mean... If anyone has ever raced downhill or if they haven't, like the end of a downhill run, a lot of times in two minutes, you can get more tired than like a 10 minute Super D run just because it's 100%. You're holding your breath so much through the corners and through the G outs. And like anytime you're like doing an action, you're usually holding your breath. So yeah, it's really gnarly. But uh, I don't know, EWS, you have to be like a more badass person, I think, to do the whole thing and do well. And then mega, like you just have to have balls (laughs) (laughs) to, to do well. And then... The other thing that's cool about Mega is there's like 4,000 people mm-hmm. that try to qualify. Wow. Dude, you'll see people out there on a 1999 hardtail with, with whatever tires, whatever brakes, whatever. They have hockey pads on, yes. a, a football helmet. Like, yes. like it's so random. And you're like, okay, this is cool. This is like the mountain bike demo, like demographic, you know, and you're like, oh, this is so sick. This is the people. French mountain bike demographic. Yeah. So you're a majority of racers French. Um, I would say that the majority is actually from Great Britain. Oh, so wow. I think that's statistically like the majority of people come from Great Britain wow. and they come over and do that race every year okay. and love it. And then, yeah, there's a lot of French, obviously a lot of Italian and German. The okay. Germans love it too for some reason. Cool. Yeah, it's really cool. So different kind of gnarly than EWS. Yeah, and like scare, for scariness, like being afraid, I've never been more afraid than the top of the mega. Like literally like, why am I here? I wish I was at home. Like, I don't want to be here and do this. And then you do it. And you're like, oh, sick. I'll come back next year. So that's twice the descending of Downeyville. Mm-hmm. Similar amount of climbing, but then the same amount of overall course length. Oof, that's a lot to think about. Yeah. It's, dude, the bottom is so steep. Like on the brakes, just sliding down these huge, steep, rooty, nasty sections. Like... Coming there from, you know, that was my first time going to Europe. It was the first time I raced that. And What year was that? 2013. Okay. And my first exposure to, like, European high alpine terrain. Like, being in the Alps, you're like, dude, this is insane compared to, like, a little Northern California boy living in the valley. Yeah. Like, I'm a valley boy, you know? <laughs> Central then, Valley. Yeah. And then you're just like, oh, my God, this mountain's bigger than, like, I don't know. My, the local hill where I grew up is 700 foot vertical. So, it's <laughs> 10, 10 X the longest ascent. You know, you're like, oh, my God. One final race question. Oh, no, we have a bunch more race questions. I lied. Okay. I also wanted to ask you about downhill racing and if we'll see you make a renewed push for the downhill scene. I don't know. Uh, That's a good question. And I just built up a downhill bike. So we'll see. I'm going to go ride it at Whistler this week, see how I feel. I haven't been on a downhill bike since 2012. Wow. Yeah. I've seen you race on a... I don't know if you were racing, but I saw you... I think it might have been on a Demo 8 or something at Northstar with some pretty cool lines. That was the first time I really saw how you do something that was like, wait, wait, what? How did he do that? Totally. Yeah. I, I actually podiumed at a couple pro GRTs. Okay. Um, so like back in the day, like right before I started racing enduro. So I had some good speed in the downhill stuff and I was like first alternate for junior worlds. Oh, one cool. year. Um, but yeah, I just crashed in national champs. So I don't know. We'll see. I would love to, like I said, I'm kind of like a wuss nowadays. Now I'm getting older. I'm more reserved. So I don't know if that mixes with downhill, but... Why is that? Is that injury-related or just career focus? Yeah, definitely. I don't know. I think a lot of it comes back to, like, having less to prove to myself about Mm -hmm. myself. I'm like, I don't need to take this risk because at the end of the day, like, if... if, I don't know. I just don't feel like I have to show off for, like, other people anymore. And I used to be, like, full-on, like, I want to do well so people, like, think that I'm cool. When I was growing up, you know, it's the only thing I ever shined in. And I was like, it's cool to, like, have people, you know, 
congratulate you or say whatever. Mm-hmm. And I was like feeding off that in a kind of a not negative way, but it wasn't the healthiest way, I don't think. And as I've gotten older and like more stable in life, it just seems like I need that less and less. So now I only do things that I kind of like want. And sometimes I'll do something gnarly. People are like, dude, that was crazy. And like, yeah, but it felt calculated. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's harder when you're like, this is a huge jump. I'm scared of it. There's a route everywhere on the landing. And you're like, I don't feel confident in this, but I have to do it to be fast. Yeah. That's and different. it's pouring rain. So I have to really send it because no one else will. And this is my chance to make up some time. Yeah. Right. So it's different. And then when you're out on your own and you're like, I something up and you think about it for a minute, you're like, I can do that. Yeah. Yeah. And then people are like, what the heck? <laughs> but yeah, it's a different feeling for sure. Okay. Yeah. Maybe, so maybe downhill, downhill be fun. Racing. Maybe downhill be fun. Maybe when I get old, I'll do Masters World Champs. Oh, older. that'd be sweet. <laughs> <laughs> when you get old. Oh, <laughs> I've got quite a few years on you, so you're not allowed to talk about I know, being I know, old. <laughs> I know. Um, speaking of racing, you're one of the few people I know that have raced a GNCC e-bike race. Yeah, that was this year as well. Cool. That was cool. What was the experience like? Because maybe some of our listeners here have raced Enduros or cross countries, but they've been to general mountain bike events. I've been to quite a few moto events and there's kind of a different vibe. Like the competitiveness is more outright and just playing people aren't afraid to cut each other off in turns. Punting into swing arms is a real thing with the totally. moto crew. What was it like doing the GNCC? Um, well, first of all, like going there and having no expectations of what mm-hmm. I was going to find, you know, I talked to Carrie Russell, who's the uh, coordinator of MX mm-hmm. sports and kind of helped them with some advice on how I think the rules should be formed and what it would look like. Um, and, but I didn't know what the people are like there or what, it, you know, the vibe is or anything. Um, and I go there and it's like in the middle, like basically two hours outside of Atlanta, three hours outside of Atlanta in the middle okay. of nowhere. It's at the general. And, um, yeah, it was crazy. You pull up and there's literally like a thousand motorhomes. Yeah. Like RVs, like tons and tons of people there. You're like, this is crazy amount of money. Um, but it was cool. I think there was like 3000 people there that weekend. So pretty big, you know, showing for the yeah. whole moto side. And uh, I think there was only about like 75 people that raced the e-bike. It was okay. the first one. Mm-hmm. It was really cool. And they're, they're totally different in their mindset and approach to it. Because to them, they're like, dude, this e-bike's sick. Like, it doesn't tear up any of the trails. It's super quiet. I can ride wherever I want. And like for the mountain biker, it's like this thing tears up the trails. It's super <laughs> weird. And I can't ride anywhere. So it's like oh, two totally different perspectives of the yeah. same thing. And uh, everyone was just having a blast with it. Basically, we did one hour of racing, so it was four laps. The laps ended up being about 14 minutes. So it was um, kind of like a cross between short track cross country and cyclocross almost. Yeah, I would say it was like a cyclocross event, but with very, very technical terrain, both up and down. Um, oh. There was some like pretty long, flat connecting sections, but okay. anytime we were going down, it was on like super rooty, tight technical trees, and like... I don't know if you've ever been to a moto enduro, but a lot of the stuff they ride through is like 32 inches wide. Mm-hmm. So like you having to like stop and pivot and like I actually broke my grip off the end of the handlebar, like the last wow. two inches of my grip because I hit it on a tree and it's so tight and narrow and the speed was a lot slower, but it was really fun. And the funny thing, like you said, the competitiveness is different. Dude, I've never seen people cut the track as bad as I saw there. <laughs> I was like, are you kidding me? Like, You've been racing enduro in France. Yeah, exactly. Like <laughs> the French line has nothing on the American like Southeast line. <laughs> and I was like, oh my God. Like they just went straight through three turns. Like what the hell? So yeah, I got passed by like four guys kind of right at the start. I'm like, oh, this is how it's going to be. Okay. And then yeah, I got into the battle with a few people. And racing the e-bike is really interesting because it's so dependent on the motor of the bike. Because... um basically everyone's limited at 20 miles an hour, right? Mm -hmm. So the only time you can make up 
time is either A, pedaling on flat ground over 20 miles an hour, or B, on a steeper climb where torque becomes a factor. And so like I'm on a Shimano motor and it has 80 newton meters of torque and the newest like Bros motor from Specialized has 90 newton meters of ah. torque. So like, dude, literally on anything steep, they would pull away from me. And then on like the technical stuff, I could gain back up. But I ended up getting third, first and second round Specialized and then fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh Specialized and then Shimano motors, then Yamaha motors and Bosch. Oh, wow. And you could group it by motor essentially. But after the- you hit that 20 mile an hour e-bike assist cutoff you can keep pedaling past that and increase your speed right yeah you can but it's it's really difficult like it's a lot of power yeah. to push past 20 on flats it, it is it's a lot of power and also like those bikes aren't necessarily set up to be the most efficient mm-hmm. so like you know i had 2.8 tires and 2.8 yeah oh my goodness 2.8 tires and soft suspension to like kind of track on the roots because mm-hmm. it was wet and it rained and um yeah it's hard like if i'm sprinting full death i'm at 22 miles an hour and if i'm like chilling i'm at 20 okay so it's kind of a strategy thing a bit yeah, too. yeah. but yeah i definitely my average heart rate for one hour was 186 wow and my max was 198 yeah so it was gnarly but for people that think e-bikes are for lazy people it's definitely not that case it's more of like if you want a great cardio workout in a shorter amount of time it's there but you do not get the leg workout like the strength is different for sure you don't get into the red zone as bad yeah, you don't get into like muscular fatigue as bad, but your cardio, my cardio has never been higher. Like it was insane because my max is 198 to 202, like somewhere in that zone. And yeah, I was like coughing up blood after the race. Oh, so yeah, it was hard. It's kind of funny. People think of it as like, oh, it has a motor. You just cruise around. You're like, everyone is on the same thing. And it basically becomes competitive, you know, like mindset and technical ability in the woods. Do you think e-bike racing is going to be catch on more and create a new genre? I think it will because like um, the following round, round two they had in Carolina, there was 9,000 people at that event and they had double the amount of entries for e-bike and one of the local bike shops set up there Mm -hmm. and they sold 17 e-bikes that day. Wow. So people were like going, a lot of the kids that are going to those races are maybe a little intimidated of motorcycles, their dad races and they're like, hey, if you want, you can race the e-bike race Saturday. I'll race the moto Sunday or, you know, it's a cool environment. So I think next year we're going to do some fun stuff where we do like both, like race e-bike Saturday, Moto Sunday. Oh, like make a combined. Yeah. Best. Oh. Yeah, it'd be cool. Oh, jeez. I kind of want to come out of retirement. Yeah, <laughs> it's cool. It's I hard. need an e-bike first though. Yes, <laughs> for sure. Yeah, it's it was a crazy race for sure. But my average speed is like 16 miles an hour-ish through all okay. the terrain. And then, yeah, 186 average heart rate Oof. for an hour. So, in this day and age, would you say e-bikes are essential training tools for either downhill racers or enduro racers? Um, to be honest, they're so different that I initially I was like, dude, this is so good for my riding because it helps me get just so many more miles in. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think it helps with like reading terrain, but the excess weight, like my e-bike that I have set up with like good tires and suspension, everything is 54 pounds. Okay. Um, and my trail bike, you know, 170 mil travels 31. 32. So you have 20, 20 pounds more. And, um, it definitely changes your riding style so much. I don't think it correlates that well. Interesting. I feel like on a very smooth, high speed, flat trail, like where you're not really like descending like crazy, mm-hmm. but you're carrying a lot of speed. It's the same. I feel no difference. Okay. I can still play on it, but yeah, riding in Chico last week, it's like super technical. Like one of the trails is called mountain goat and it's like, you know, crazy technical up and down and I was struggling so hard on that bike. With the e-bike. Yeah, it was so hard. Just because like those little micro movements of like picking the bike up just like one inch to get over this little 
tiny ledge and yeah. like put your wheels where you want it. It's so hard to do. But I know, like, um, there's a few brands coming out with some stuff that's going to be, like, in the 38-pound range. Oh, cool. And lower assists, so lower power with a smaller battery. But oh. basically, it'll be, like, the perfect lunch ride bike or okay. people that want to, like, get out. Because that's the nice thing. I can go out for one hour and do every single trail at, like, our local Eagle, Eagle Bike Park in gotcha. Boise. And, uh, yeah, I can literally go hit the slalom, dirt jumps, hit all these downhill trails, everything in one hour, and then be done and go back to work. How long would that take on a standard acoustic bike? At least three, like triple the amount of time for sure Dang. on the uphills. Because I can usually climb at about 12 miles an hour on the uphills, and then on my normal bike, I'm at about like five to six miles an hour. Wow. And then plus you just get more fatigue, so you take a few more breaks. But yeah, exactly. Yeah, but like I said, the cardio is the same if I overlay like a, you know, a Strava or whatever Garmin chart mm -hmm. like if i rode for one hour on either bike the cardio is the same just my leg strength is way different ah. so i feel like if i ride my e-bike a lot i don't ride my normal bike then like my legs especially my glutes and butt like so weak i'm like dude <laughs> what am i doing so gotta hit the squat rack <laughs> yeah it's crazy it's such a different feeling dude i was doing so many squats and deadlifts before i got hurt and now i was trying to just do some pistols with no weight there's no way i've got a while to go that's oh. crazy uh, but that's part of, you know, it's good to have something to overcome. So I'm looking forward to that <laughs> real quick. We'll touch on the e-bike thing one more time. Were any of the other competitors in that race pro moto guys? And were they using the motor in ways that you might not have thought of like pedaling earlier in a corner to use the power to pull them through, or were they manipulating the bike in ways that you hadn't quite anticipated them to do? Um, so the guy that actually got first place, he was on a, a specialized, he's sponsored by them, but he actually was a GNCC pro moto champion for mm -hmm. a few years. I forget his last name, but his first name is Charlie. And, oh, Charlie uh, Mullins. Yeah, Charlie Mullins. Yeah. And he's like super good on a bike too. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the moto guys cross train on cross country bikes. Oh yeah. And basically the GNCC, the reason this whole thing came about is because you're not allowed to pre-ride the course for GNCC, but you're allowed to walk it or mountain bike it. And then people were like, well, can we e-bike it? And they're like, yeah, yeah, that's fine. So then everyone started buying e-bikes. And then Carrie was telling me that at one of the races, they had 500 people show up on e-bikes <laughs> to pre-ride the course. And they're like, why don't we just race these? Yeah. And so people were like, all right, cool. We'll race them Saturday evening. And then the moto race is Sunday. So a lot of the moto guys, um, I mean, it's still mountain biking. So this the little bit of like, you know, pulling through a corner or something is maybe a little bit differently influenced, but I think that everyone's pretty similar as far as riding style. Really? Yeah. It was you didn't really... see anyone like pedaling off takeoffs to get more boost? No, because it doesn't necessarily work that way a lot of times because um, basically anytime you're going downhill, you're probably close to or above that threshold of 20 miles an hour. And so sometimes I've like been sprinting into a jump and had the assist cut off. And then you're like, whoa, like you feel like a boat anchor just mm -hmm. dropped. And then you're like, oh, crazy. So a lot of times when I'm descending, I have a small button on my handlebar and I'll turn it off or to like very low power or whatever. Wow. Um, and then just ride it normally down. And then on flatter trails, I have it on boost mode or whatever. But yeah, it's interesting. It'll be cool to see how it develops different styles. But mm -hmm. the moto guys are sick for sure. So they weren't riding it that different. No, yeah. I think a lot of the guys that are interested in it at this point in time are also mountain bikers. So they probably come from that perspective of like, oh, I ride mountain bikes. This is how you ride a mountain bike. This is how you ride a moto. Just like you don't think about it a lot of times. You jump on your mountain bike your right brake is your rear brake. Mm -hmm. In moto, your right brake is your front brake. And you're like, oh, wait, okay. But you don't have to think about it after a while, right? It's just on moto, I do this. On mountain bike, I do this. Yeah, I can usually go back and forth between the two without a whole lot of hesitating. Totally. Like, I've never 
grabbed my front brake on a bicycle looking for a clutch. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, you know, I've never grabbed a clutch looking for a front brake totally. on my dirt bike. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I don't even... It's, it's weird how you compartmentalize those things in your yeah. head, but it's, like, it's so similar. But, yeah, it's cool. I wonder if I rode more mountain bikes in the full-face helmet if I'd have more issues. I wonder <laughs> if the helmet is like, all right, full-face helmet. I got clutch, front brake, rear brakes on my foot. I'm sure part of it, for sure. Or mm. boots. You had to start riding like Bender with moto boots. Oh, gosh. <laughs> <laughs> I don't need to be doing anything big enough to require such <laughs> footwear. You've <laughs> um, been riding for a long time. What other pro riders have most influenced you? Um, I think from a stylistic standpoint, like my favorite rider to emulate was uh, Aaron Chase. Okay. So very like jibby and like lots of cool little technical lines. He was my favorite like hardtail rider. And first bike I bought when I saved up all my monies was uh, a Chase, a used Chase hardtail. From Cannondale. Yep. Yeah. And so uh, he was really awesome in that aspect. From racing, I always really, really looked up to Sam Hill and Minar, which are obviously like two of the best of all time. Mm -hmm. And I really love Minar for his smoothness and Sam Hill for his line choice. Okay. So like, I'm not tall enough to ride like Minar, but I like to think that I, <laughs> you know, I try to like sure. just super smooth, break early, roll through the corners, like no wasted energy. That's how I've always tried to ride. And, um, yeah, he was a huge influence. And then I think for like sponsorship and, uh, business acumen, mm -hmm. like we're, Oh, okay. Yeah. Mark Weir. Yeah. Mark Weir. He was really someone I looked up to a lot, like as far as, well, you can make this a living. Mm -hmm. And I didn't really ever see that. He was the first person I like saw that had a house from mountain biking. I was like, whoa. Sort of. <laughs> like, yeah, totally. But I was like, this is crazy. He's making a living at doing this. And yeah, it was interesting. That inspired me a lot because I didn't really know that that was possible. What's your best Mark Weir story? Oh, uh, man. There's a lot of good ones, but I don't know how many, how PG or R-rated this show is. We're but quite PG here. Yeah, totally. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I think the funniest one is when uh, him and Ben Cruz got in a fight and he choked, he choked Ben out so long that they said Ben was within one, one minute of dying oh, and they had to rush him to the hospital. Like oh. he was temporarily par paralyzed. You're like, dude, oh. these two drunk hillbilly guys are just going for it. You're like, uh, <laughs> I was always like, I don't want to wrestle with either one of them. No. So, <laughs> but yeah, he's a good dude. Um, now that you're not racing as much, has your training and workout regimen changed much? Yeah, definitely. I don't think, like, honestly, I don't think I've done an interval in like two years. Do you miss them? No. <laughs> really? Yeah. Cause like I had a coach, um, for a bit there, Dave Sheik, and he helped me from Carmichael training systems. Mm -hmm. And dude, we would literally go out and I would do one minute full sprint standing mm -hmm. one minute off for 40 minutes of a climb. So I'd go find a big climb, do one minute on, one minute off, basically sprint for one minute, turn around, cruise down the hill, sprint back up for one minute. And I'd like do that for 40 minutes. You had to do the same section over and over. You could do multiple in a row. Where I lived, that was the only where I could find oh. a uh, hill that was sustainable enough was just to keep doing the same section oh, over and rough. over. So I just had this little zone where I'd just keep lapping these mailboxes over and over and over yeah. and over. And yeah, like vomiting, like, like it was so gnarly, but I wanted to do well and it was worth it. And then I could see, you know, it paid off. Mm -hmm. um, now, mostly what I do is like, I've been working with like this uh, chiropractic center in Boise, modern chiropractic. And they're just helping me like get a strong structure because my back's been messed up for years yep. from injuries. Um, and they found out one of my legs is actually quite a bit shorter than the other from basic injuries and then just growth as well. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, they've helped me with like a, a heel lift and some stuff and it's made a massive difference. Cool. So now I'm like more rehabbing, <laughs> like less, less uh, goal oriented you know, gym workout and more like just trying to rehab. So what's your current like rough training or life fitness schedule look like? Um, just riding, riding bikes a lot for sure. When I can, uh, either a e-bike or, you know, normal bike. And if I do like 
work out in the gym a lot, then basically it's a lot of like lightweight movement based mm-hmm. stuff. I was working with um, enduro mountain bike training, like D Tidwell. Yep. He helped me out with some stuff there, like kettlebell, um, very free weighty, like all that stuff. And I have a little home gym, so I can just, you know, be editing or emailing and then go inside, work out for 20 minutes, come back out and do that a few times a day. Nice. So that helps for sure. Man, I wish I could work out at home. I have to go <laughs> somewhere to work out. It's always been like that. But. Yeah, it's so hard. But <laughs> um, How strict's your diet? No, not very strict. <laughs> Fair I enough. Fail, I fail at that sometimes. I have a sweet tooth for sure. And honestly, like something I enjoy is just, like traveling and eating different foods okay. and when we're traveling. So the hardest thing is like when I'm home, I'm pretty good. I'll be like, okay, cool. I have a, a regimen of you know the same things I eat all the time. And then when I travel, I'm like, oh, it's all at the window. Gotcha. So, you know, like in, in France, we had whatever food that whole night and then like you know cafe gaumont which is like a sampler of all the treats and then coffee every night for like 10 days with the whole crew and we had 30 people out like every night at dinner and you're just like it's hard to be the one that's like i'm gonna have a salad you know so you're like it's tough but yeah it's a good problem to have i guess (laughs) well i won't tell anyone that your diet's not super strict (laughs) yeah i don't have anything that i need to really like uh prepare for because even when i race like i said it's just for fun and for a lot of times testing so yeah, as long as I'm still in like pretty good shape and I can match a lot of my PRs wherever I'm riding, then I'm happy. Boom. Yeah. Strava PRs? Oh, man. <laughs> yeah, private. Always private. Okay, so people can't find you on Strava? Uh, every once in a while. like Sometimes I'll go out like with the goal of, like, I think I can do this run today and go fast, and I'll just do it like, one, try to get KOM, and then like that's it. And if I get it, I'll post it. But yeah, I don't really post very often. Just because I had some... Dude, I literally was at a house party one time. And someone came up to me. They're like, I beat you today. Oh, and I'm like, wait, what? That's they're like, so yeah, I tacky. beat you on Strava. And I was like, oh my God, okay. And he was like, actually, I've had, funniest thing, I've had people write into my sponsors comparing Strava results, mm-hmm. sending screenshots of their name above my name on a certain trail that they live near. And uh, yeah, people have like literally sent resumes like, hey, I beat Kyle on this trail. Like, can you send me a frame? <laughs> and you're like, whoa. Like I had a few sponsors uh. tell me like, dude, we've gotten like comparison shots. So yeah, I just turn it off. You know what's funny is that actually shows the sponsors that you're well known in the local community. I know. And furthers your whole deal. Yeah, because they're like, oh, they, they care enough to like share this. But I mean, yeah. it's flattering. It's cool. And I'm just, uh, yeah, I don't know. I sometimes will do it when I'm racing just to compare and stuff. But yeah, always private. And honestly, like, I may Strava once every three months. I don't, I don't, you track rides or anything, mm-hmm. especially since I got my girlfriend into riding. Um, when I ride, it's just for fun. And I haven't really been doing a good job of posting Instagram stuff this year either, just because like, I don't want to stop and pull my phone out because I'm just enjoying it. So sure. it's really hard to like stop, pull it out, break the moment, you know, make everyone else in your group wait. You're like, I don't <laughs> want to deal with this. I'm just going to ride and have fun. And yeah. Leave the internet at home. Yeah, totally. Turn it off for a bit. Cause I mean, like, you know, now with what you're doing so much of the day as a pro rider is spent emailing and you know, talking, connecting dots, booking travel, booking logistics, all this stuff. Like the last thing you want to do at the end of the day is go for your one or two hour like escape ride and then be constantly worried about, oh, I got to get this photo and this clip and can you film this? And hey, what about this? And no one wants to deal with your shit either, you know? I set it up a little bit differently. I go out on shooting rides and on non-shooting rides. That's so, smart, yeah. Sort of. I don't know if it's really that smart because I've lost a lot of fitness and skill in the last year, but at the same time, I'm able to like have this huge bank of content on hand, which is nice. Yeah, totally. When especially when I'm broken. Totally. <laughs> happens. <laughs> yeah, I've been trying to do a better job this year about just uh, coordinating with sponsors and doing like specific trips. Like I went to New Zealand for two weeks with Rosignol. That was all like a content trip. Went to France for Mega Avalanche. That was a content trip with Suntour. Uh, just went to Retallic with PNW Components. That was cool. a content trip. So like, yeah, just being smarter about doing those big projects and then 
doing my stuff at home more just for myself. Keeps you more engaged, and I love it more for sure. Right on. Well, speaking of at home, you fairly recently, in the last few years here, moved to Boise, Idaho. Yeah. Seems like a lot of people are moving to Idaho, especially Boise. Do you think Boise is the next Bellingham? Oh, I don't know. I don't. So the reason I moved up there is I, I met a girl who's really, really rad, my girlfriend April, and basically, like, I, you know, was van lifing, traveling around the U.S., kind of cruising in my van. And then I was like, oh, this chick's awesome. Like, let's do this. And yeah, I just moved up there for her. So that was my reasoning there. The area is really awesome. And there's so many cool mountain bikers there. And like, you do have, you know, the guy from Vital MTB, Spomer's there. Andrew Taylor just moved there. Like a few other people are kind of like looking. But uh, I don't know if the train's like good enough in, in the way that like Bellingham is mm-hmm. and the proximity to other riding. Because the only thing that sucks about Boise is... um we're like five hours from Salt Lake and, you know, eight hours to Seattle and seven hours to Portland. So you're basically kind of like on a, a riding oasis island where it's like there's tons of good stuff in Boise and, and the very close surrounding area. But to get anywhere else around, it takes a while. Gotcha. Like it took me 10 hours to get here. And that's a long yeah, time. Yeah. If you don't hit Seattle at 4 p.m., it's a little bit easier. Yeah, totally. So, yeah, I don't know. We'll see what happens with it. But uh, I definitely think there's like a mass migration away from California at the moment. And it seems like a lot of people are landing either in Reno or uh, Boise yeah. for whatever reason. So. I've heard a lot of people going to Idaho. Jeremiah Newman from WTV yep. went. A whole bunch of people have gone. Yeah, it's a cool place to live. And I don't know. I enjoy it for sure. But I'm curious to see how it'll grow. Sure. Yeah. Um, one thing I want to ask about, you had a pretty unique fundraiser for the campfire and or, uh, the campfire is not what it might sound like at first. That's a huge forest fire yeah. down in it's the Chico Oroville area. Name. I know that's tough, but because, um, yeah, it was basically a fire that started in Camp Creek, um, which is just outside of Paradise, California mm-hmm. and uh, a PG&E, which is the electric company in California, their transformer fell down like during a high wind and yeah, sparked a fire. Burned down over 20,000 homes, displaced 30,000 people. Oof. It killed like over 80 people. And uh, yeah, it was a massive, massive impact to the area, especially sure. for my hometown of Chico, which is like 15 minutes down the hill. Mm-hmm. Um, they basically absorbed 20,000 people in wow. one day. So the population went from like 80,000-ish to 100 and something yeah. in one day. Wow. And people were paying. In, that, in the weeks following, I've heard stories of houses going for sale for 125 to 200k over asking price in chico in chico wow yeah and even all the way out to red bluff which is 45 minutes outside mm-hmm. of chico people were paying 100k over asking price wow so Just yeah they had nowhere to live without, nowhere to live yeah, yeah wow. there's basically like a huge fema shelter which is like the um, emergency shelter at the fairgrounds mm-hmm. and yeah so many tents and trailers and people living there and just so much outpouring of support from the neighboring communities but people wanted a home and yeah it was a crazy time so kind of let that settle a bit and then just tried to help in a small little way with how we could. We did a fundraiser. All my sponsors were really cool and like uh, donated enough parts to build a complete bike. And Richard at Mm stickered.com, he helped me design all the logoing and Brian at Bikeology, which is like an online bike builder. He kind of helped develop like the the mock-up of the bike. So whoever won got to pick whatever size felt bike they wanted, all the parts, tons of gear, fly racing, pit piper, all this stuff. And yeah, we raised about 15 grand. I saw your goal was 10K yeah. and then you surpassed it to 15K. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, it was cool. And so 25% of that is going to go towards buying um, some like cross-country hardtails to get kids that want to join the high school mountain bike team that just formed. If they want to join and they don't have a bike, like they can, you know, kind of like take a bike out, like mm-hmm. a library sort of thing, return at the end of the year and just ride for fun. Um, we're going to try to do at least five bikes there. And then the rest is going to go towards um, covering the cost of 
like mental health uh, consultation and therapy for oh, wow. especially like I want to really focus it on the high school kids. Okay. Uh, the how high school burned down. Like our wow. the high school parts of it was standing, but they were basically like evacuated, didn't get to go back to it. The sh- town was shut down, and they set up a temporary high school for the rest of the year at uh, the Chico Airport. And all those kids basically were living at home, just kind of normal day to day life, and then all of a sudden, like blink of an eye. They're completely in a new area, new town, new school, yeah. like just a s- temporary shelter. Like it was really screwed up. And yeah. so a lot of the kids have PTSD, especially since paradise. Um, like there was people escaping from the fire with, you know, cars were literally catching on fire as people were driving out. Wow. And uh, it's all set up on propane up there as well. Oh, and they're so just exploding. Exploding tank, propane tank, tanks wow. and trees falling down and like... Yeah, one of the ambulances evacuated from the hospital. The ambulance caught on fire. They oh. evacuated into a house in a garage. The, the house caught on fire, oh. and then a fire truck came up and like saved everyone. And wow, yeah, it was it was not like just a you know oh it's something crazy happened. It was like this is a life changing event for yeah. a lot of people. And uh, yeah, if we can help even in a small way, there's a lot of great initiatives from Sierra Nevada and from Aaron Rodgers donated some money and a few other really cool people helped out. But I just wanted to help in a little way and mostly just show the people in the community that the mountain bike community thinks and cares about them. Totally. That sometimes is worth more than anything. Sure. Like just that, like we love you. We care about you. Like we're thinking about you. Yeah. And in a lot of ways that can make people feel special, especially all the pro riders. I got to help donate uh, memorabilia like Seminuk and Jill Kittner and Marco Osborne and cool. Nate Hills. Like all these people help donate jerseys and stuff. And yeah, just, yeah, it's cool. It makes you feel special, I guess, in a way, if you're from that area and you're like, dude, these people know about us and what happened and they care and they want to help. That's awesome. I can't think of really many other pro athletes that have done anything at all like that. So I think that's really <laughs> cool. Uh, yeah, they say it takes a, a certain type of selfishness to be a pro athlete in any sport. It really does. And I was guilty of that when I was growing up. And like I said, when we got the public pump track built in Chico, like it really flipped a switch in my head. And I was like, whoa, like everything I do compared to this is meaningless. Like Mm -hmm. having, you know, say there's even 10 kids that are positively impacted by this and they can, you know, grow up and have a better life because they have a positive outlet that's free to use whenever, like that's way more important than me getting third at a North American race. So that was, it was really hard after that point to like get motivated and feel like I wanted to race. Sure. Yeah. Dude, that whole selfishness thing, that's a big part of why I got married, had a kid, and tried to, like, get away from the so self-centric lifestyle. Yeah, it's really hard to break, though, for sure. And I think that, uh, especially nowadays with, like, social media, like, we're almost taught in a way to be, like, everyone cares about me and wants to see what I'm doing. But at the end of the day, everyone's living their life, and no one really... I mean, people care and they check in, but at the end of the day, like, the most important thing is your your inner circle and what you're connected to, right? Your family. And if you take care of them and do your job there, then that's all that matters really. Yeah. And everything else is a bonus. And yeah, like I said, it's harder even with racing and with social media and all that stuff. I feel like I feel myself pulling away more as I get older. Sure. But yeah, I just care more about my girlfriend that we just bought a house together. We have like a really nice life wow. in Boise and yeah, she's awesome. And I just want to provide for her. And that's kind of my goal. Cool. So where do you want to be in five, 10 and 15 years? Um, I think that, I think five years I could still see myself doing some bike stuff for sure. I'm really passionate about it and I want to continue to do more. Um, a lot of like storytelling. So content pieces kind of going into other areas and just, you know, telling people stories of how biking has helped them and helped their lives. Cool. I think there's a wider audience that we're not really touching in, in some ways, mm-hmm. especially with like pink bike vital and all these like 
you know, just shred. Yeah, let's get after it. Like drift every turn. It's like, yeah. that is a portion of mountain biking. But the majority of people that ride a mountain bike have never even heard of those websites. I know. It's crazy. So, you know, just like you're finding out too, with like the YouTube crowd, it's like, it's so separate and it's cool that it's separate because it gives you different things you can focus on. And I think there's a, a lack of attention on like just getting people stoked to be out there. And yeah, there's a few brands doing it well, and I'd love to partner with them and, and work on stuff like that. Cool. Well, let's wrap this up. Who do you, uh, who makes it possible for you to do what you do? Yeah. Like I said, like the big one right now is Rosignol. SR Suntour has been with me for like seven years. Uh, Shimano, PNW Components. We just did a signature handlebar, which is really cool this year. I have them on my bikes. Yeah, that's cool. <laughs> and like, cool thing about that is like, instead of pulling a royalty, cause you know, it's, I mean, it's cool and all, but Basically, I just wanted to flip that royalty and turn it into a donation towards NICA, like the high school mountain bike team cool. or program. Sorry. Mm-hmm. So we're going to donate to them and help pay for some stuff. And uh, yeah, that's been really cool. It's fun to be involved in that. And then the other big one is Fly Racing and uh, PerformanceBike.com. Awesome. So yeah, I'm stoked. It's really cool. I have a lot of great sponsors and I feel lucky to be able to do what I do. Well, plug your channels. How can people find your, your stuff? Yeah, on Instagram, I'm just Kyle Warner MTB. And then on YouTube, it's just Kyle Warner. Um, okay. So yeah, just kind of doing more of that stuff and uh, hopefully get better at all the SEO and, and optimizing it. But it just You'll be time. fine. The more content you get up there, the easier <laughs> it is to find. It's like a funnel. Yeah, totally. And at the end of the day, like the most important thing is uh, intimate interaction. So I've been like this year spending a lot of time going to mountain bike festivals and like leading group rides and cool. doing all this stuff. And I just enjoy seeing people get stoked. And it's fun to be like, I don't know. A lot of them have never heard of me. They don't know that I have a, a racing background or anything, right? Sure. And so, like, they don't care. They don't treat me any different. And it's like, <laughs> oh, this guy's leading the ride. And so it's fun when you can go out and ride and, like, do some little manuals or whatever. And they're like, dude, this is sick. <laughs> like, I think it's it's cool. It's more authentic that way. And I just love seeing people happy. Cool. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the Kendall vs. Kendall show with only half the Kendalls. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for your time, Jeff. I appreciate it. And I know you have, you know, wife and family. And I... I appreciate you spending this time with me. Oh, it's well, I'm also excited to be on your podcast yeah. as well. So <laughs> double <laughs> thanks. Cool. Well, cool. We'll wrap this up here. I want to thank Jensen USA for making this podcast possible. And thank you guys all for listening. Awesome. If thanks, anyone Jeff. has any questions for Kyle, direct them to him on his Instagram page, YouTube channel, and stay tuned for his podcast. Yeah. Thank you guys. Toodles. <laughs>